We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, today I'm going to start with my comments again in chapter 1, but this time I will start with verse 18. Verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, I want to start with that, that he brought us forth, because we will be getting into a section that talks about faith and works. And I know that down through time and history, there have been some concern about what it is that James was teaching and whether it had conflicts with, for example, Paul and what he taught. Of course, we understand that there were no conflicts, that they were each writing to an audience, and they had unanimity in doctrine. We understand that. But it's not necessarily clear when we look at it on the surface that that is the case. And so we are looking again and talking again about some of these things. Now, in verse number 19, there are three things, three words here. Swift, slow, and slow. Now, that's quite an interesting thought. Swift. He says, my beloved brethren. He's talking to a certain category of people who have the capacity to do what he's telling them to do. They have the, what they need in order to be able to do it. It's not just saying do something that can't be done. But he says here, swift to hear. I was thinking about that, particularly in light of the word of truth. Swift to hear what God has to say. We should focus ourselves to be wanting to be there, to be swift to hear what God has to say. Slow to speak. I was thinking about that in terms of being slow to speak our minds. What comes out of our own making? Slow to speak that. And then slow to wrath. Slow to get angry. 
There is something that people have talked about called a righteous anger. But I think if you would ask most of the believers who have had a problem with anger, that when their anger burst out, whether it was a, a righteous anger, and I think you would have few who would say it was, slow to anger, slow to wrath. So then, because of that, he says, now, what should you do? There are some things that need to be done. So it talks about in verse 21, lay aside the filthiness, the overflow of wickedness. So laying aside those things, certain things that are wrong, wicked. And then receive with meekness. There it is, the word again, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So there are two parts to what's going on. One is that some things need to be laid aside and some things need to be brought to the fore. Some things need to be dismissed and the things of God should be elevated. And that's what the point is that he's making here. Lay aside, receive. And then in verse number 22, do. So we have three things there. To lay aside, to receive, and to do. And so we can think about that. Sometimes there can be things that are impediments to us, to our progress in spiritual development, if we want to put it in those words, things that are hindering growth that need to be set aside. And then sometimes our receiving what God has to say picks up again after we laid aside some of that. And sometimes until we do, we're just kind of scraping at the bottom. So we need to be on guard for that. So he says in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I keep going over and over and over again, not deceiving yourselves. Do not be deceived, it says in verse 16. My beloved brethren, don't be deceived. And then it goes on in the next portion here, talking about uh, giving some illustration of what actually that means about a hero and trying to make it a bold impression to say, Think about these things. Meditate on them. Consider them so that you will not be deceived. And then in verse 25, again, back to the word of God, what God has to say, what he's concerned about. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty 
perfect law of liberty. Now, that's an interesting expression. But what if we think about that as the liberty to do what's right? Liberty to do the right thing. We didn't have that liberty as an unsaved person separated from God. We couldn't please him. But as a saved person, we have a liberty to please him, to do what the Lord wants. We should want that. But he said, who looks into the perfect law of liberty, all the things that God has given to us in the scriptures for us to learn from, look it in. Look. Continue in it. Don't forget. And do. Those are orders to live by. So we have our Bibles. And we've talked about that often. We have them. Most of us have many copies of the Bible. A lot of different translations. Lots of different English translations. We have it. But part of the issue is, so then what do we do with it? I remember I studied and I talked one time just about emphasizing the importance of what it is that we have and how important it is for us to take seriously what it is and to consider it seriously. And that is what this is prompting us to be concerned with here. To look into that law, look into God's word, and continue in it. And then, don't forget. Of course, continuing in it is one of the ways to not forget what it says. But then, looking in and continuing and not forgetting is not the end. That's not the full package. But there's another key element, too, to the not forgetting. That is doing. And so he says... Be a doer, not a forgetful hearer in verse 25, but a doer of the work. And it says, this one will be blessed in his deeds. Guaranteed. Do these things, and there will be blessing. Now, that's what God has to say. And we, we don't want to debate God on that point. We want to just say, Lord, help us to do it, these things, to look in, to continue, to not forget, and to do what we're supposed to be doing. Help us to do that. That's what we're trying to get, get to. Now, verse 26. You know, we just talked about the whole idea of being deceived. Verse 26 is right on that same point. Because it says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious. Or for our purposes, 
I might put it this way. If anyone among you thinks he's living the way he should be living as a Christian, maybe we think about it like that. But it does not bridle his tongue. But deceives his own heart. Deceit. And so the idea that a person can think and they can declare and say, I am I'm a good upstanding Christian and I'm living like it. They can say that. I can say it. But I say but having said it doesn't make it true. It needs to be true. And so the tongue then is brought in. What our tongues are used for. God has a purpose for our tongues. Glory to God. Edification of one another. Proclamation of the truth uses of the tongue of which God approves. But even among us who are Christian believers, sometimes we have a problem. In fact, I've heard coming out of the mouths of professed Christians things that caused me just think, wow. <laughs> I mean, in a public setting, you know? And people know that person. I heard a man who I worked with, and he said some things. And he was, he didn't just consider himself to be Christian, but he's he had a church and he was a pastor. But some of those things that came out of that man's mouth made my jaw drop. Somebody can think they're religious and yet be deceived in their own heart. And so James tells us about that kind of religion. What he says is it's useless. It may look grand and proper and excellent to certain ones who are viewing, but the reality of the matter is useless. That's what he says to them. And then he gives an illustration of how one might see an example of what a, the true religion is, pure, he says, undefiled. And then he talks about the, the widow, the orphan, and in their knees, in their troubles, to be able to see that and then to do something to help. And then this next point, and we dwelt on that some last time, about being unspotted with the world or unspotted from the world. And that is indeed a tall order. Sometimes we think, how can we not be stained and interact in the world and live in, in the midst of the things among us? But the goal here is to not be stained 
So now we move again to chapter 2. And we see at the end of verse 1 in chapter 2 the word partiality. A respect of persons or shall we say a wrong for respect of persons. Now we are told to honor those who are in positions of authority and all that. This is not in conflict with that. But he says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the Lord of glory. And I'm taking this faith reference here to refer to the, the body of truth. And it says, don't mix partiality with your presentation as a Christian person. Don't, don't do that. So, no room. We see no room in the end. And I have here no room for partiality. No room for it. So don't let your Christian faith be marred by partiality, favoritism, unjust discrimination. He says, don't do that. It's not consistent with God. See, some of these things, like, I'm going to bounce back now to chapter 1 again, to verse 19, at the bottom part of that, where it talks about the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Showing partiality is not producing and consistent with the righteousness of God. And so we need to be concerned about that. In the next few verses, in verses 2 through 6, he talks about what evidently was a problem in their assembly. And I suspect this sort of thing has been a problem in assemblies ever since then and still now. We observe and we see and we respond to what we see. And that's all good and fine as long as we respond in the proper way. And so what he says here then is they judging on the basis of outward appearance. And then it gives these two illustrations. So in their assembly, or in ours, you have someone who comes in who, the way they are attired, the way they present, we just, they just seem to be an important person. And so we just put them in the best spot. But somebody else comes in and they look like they just are an ordinary person who walked in off the street. Maybe clean clothing, but not the best of clothing. 
maybe what they're wearing, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not the most expensive or fancy looking thing. And so we say, oh, well, we're just some little place in the corner. This person's not important. And treat them like that. James says, be aware that you should not be doing that. So we have to be conscious of what we're doing and pay attention to what we're doing. We have to think about how we react and respond, and then we can get it right. And that's what the goal is, to get it right. And so he said they were paying attention to the wrong things and showing partiality. They were having evil thoughts. They were sinning, sin. That's in verses 2 through 5 there, or 4. But then he says, consider this. And this is interesting the way it is listed here. Because if you look at verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren. Then it says, Has not God chosen the poor of this world? And then in verse 6 of the first first part of it, it says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Now that we can see that there's a problem. God is looking at these people in a different way. He says God has chosen the poor of this world. This doesn't mean that he has chosen every single poor person and that they all saved. It doesn't mean that. But it might be that very much, very often, the poor are more responsive to the words and message of God. They know they need something, they need help. That oftentimes the rich conduct themselves as if they think they don't need God and they don't need what he has to offer. God is not looking at the outward appearance. He's looking on the heart. And that's what's important. And so we have to train ourselves to be more concerned about the real substance than we are about the external presentation that we look at. So he said, you have dishonored. God is honored. You have dishonored. And then he goes on to illustrate in their context how foolish that is. And he talks about it in terms of how they have put a rich and a high place amongst them. And then he says in verse 7, in verse 6, Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts. Oppress, drag you into courts, that's bad enough. But then why were you elevating in your assembly somebody who is oppressing the people? Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. 
they weren't thinking about it like that. They probably were looking for some advantage that the wealthy looking person could give them. And I think there is a fallacy in some of the churches as well because some of them want to cater towards certain ones who have the ability to give a lot instead of deferential towards them. And sometimes that deference leads into leadership decisions that are not right. But they give too much deference because of what that person has. Rich. And that person might be oppressing the people. Not treating the people fairly. They might be a slum landlord when they could do better. And they're elevated. But then so that's bad enough. But then he goes on to say, but that's not all what they're doing. They are blaspheming the name. That noble name by which you are called. Now that that is bad. And so if you really, in verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and then he's talking about Mosaic law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, lifted some of these. Love your neighbor uh, as yourself. If you do that, you do well. But if you show partiality, you sin. And are convicted of the law of transgressors, lawbreaker. This is pretty tough language here. Then it says, whoever keeps the whole law and just breaks one part of it, he's guilty. He's broken the law. It's like a chain. You know, you break a link, the chain is broken. It doesn't matter which link you broke, the chain is broken. The law, he says, you have to keep it all or you're trying to keep it for your elevation or relation to God is useless. And see, it talks about adultery and murder. Some might say, well, I don't commit the one, but do you commit the other? (laughs) Right? They both are violations. And so you don't have an opportunity to put yourself in a higher place because you didn't do this other thing. Oftentimes we like to do that, though. We, We like to emphasize other people's sins and minimize our own or shove them under the rug. But if one is trying to be right with God on the basis of keeping the law, he has to keep all of it. And he can't do it. And the sooner he realizes that, the sooner he'll be in a position to understand what the real answer is, that he needs something he can't do for himself that only God can do. In verse 18, by his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, by his own will. And so he goes on. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown the mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
that expectation of what to look forward to. If you don't show mercy, you should expect not, mercy not to be shown to you. I'm not going to linger there. I'm going to move ahead more and get to another portion here. In verse 14, what does a prophet, my brethren, if a man says he has faith? Now, this is an interesting section here because we get into here now talking about faith and works. And there are some important things for us to understand as we look at it. But it says, what does it profit? And I want to draw certain attention to certain particular words here. If someone says that he has faith. He says it. That's good. Especially if he has it. Right? It's good to say it. But then it also says if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Can the thing that he says he has be of any use to him? And he gives a way to think about that because there is another use of that word, says. So in the one, the person says, I have faith. And then look at the next part here in verse 16. It says this. If a brother or sister is naked, starting in verse 15, and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, says to them, says he has faith, but it doesn't do anything to help the need. Just says these words, depart in peace, be warned, be filled, but don't give him anything to help with the need. What profit is it? That's the same he's saying as the one who says he has faith, but he has no works. He's saying those are on the same level, useless. What he has is useless. So then it says in verse 17, faith by itself does not have works. If it doesn't, it's dead. So we can say that there is a faith that a person says he has, and it can be dead. Does that make any sense? I think it does. So then we get into this discourse. And I, I, I put them out in my notes as opponents. So one will say, show me 
your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Notice what it says. Show me, and I will show. They're not showing God. The idea is not, will God be impressed? (laughs) Will God be convinced? That's not the issue. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying, though, that to say is evidence. And he says, show me your faith without your works. So the evidence that they're presenting is what they say. Then he says, but I will show you my faith by my works. So he said also, I'm going to present evidence for my case. I'm going to say I have faith. But I'm also going to show my works. That is direct evidence. And so on the one hand, you have somebody who is saying he has faith. But the reality is that there are no works. Now, I'm not saying that we can look at individuals, pick them out, and know the absolute answer to whether there is no works. I'm not saying that. It seems like for self-evaluation, we can understand what is our status, what is our situation, self-evaluation, but no works. And so he says then, and it just says, well, faith without works is dead. There's a dead faith. But let me read on here. In verse 16, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, I will assure you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God. There's your faith. You do well. That's good. But then it says even the demons believe and tremble. So I think we can say, well, the demons also have that faith that you have. It's a dead faith. The demons have a dead faith. You have a dead faith. But the demons actually have one leg up on you (laughs) because they tremble. They fear the judgment that's coming, ultimate judgment coming to them. So then in verse 20, it says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? You ought to understand. He needs to understand that what he has and what he says he has is not the real faith. It's a dead thing. He needs to understand that. So then it goes on and talks about Abraham and Ahab. And so James says, Let's look at these two to illustrate the point that he's making. So we know it's not justification before God that he's talking about when he's talking about faith and works, works justifying faith, or faith justified by works. He, he can't be talking about justification before God because that was already settled way back in verse 18 in chapter 1. So that can't be what he's talking about, right? But 
What is he talking about? Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar. So what happened when he offered Isaac on the altar? I'm not going to turn to those verses now because I'm over my time. But Abraham, if you go back and read those chapters, you see where it says Abraham was justified. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for justification. So he, was, he had already come into the right of alignment with God. And then came a time, chapters later, where there was the instruction to offer Isaac. And Abraham obeyed God and he laid him on the altar to be sacrificed. Abraham, let me just put it back like where I was thinking about and saying it. So if we say Abraham professed that he believed in God and that he had a relationship with him that was right, and then he also, when the time came, he showed it. He demonstrated it. And so then those of us who are looking, we can see evidence of his faith, not just hear his words. And that's what happened. Rahab was the same thing. She came to be justified before God, before she made the decision that she made that resulted in the sparing of the life of those. Because, you see, it said that she heard about the true and the living God and what he was doing. And her heart was turned, and she came to believe him that he is indeed the true God. If she had never come to believe that, she would have never been disposed to help God's servants come through that land. But she did. So the faith and works, he's saying, out of this comes that. And that's what we see. And so, just briefly, if I can take a few more minutes here to go through, and I'll come back to this again, but. So the discussion here really is not about how to show the opponent. It is about how to show the opponent what one has. That's what the discussion is about. How do you show your opponent what you have, okay? And then... So we just talked about that. And so the one says, I have the word. I said it, take my word for it. That should be good enough. And the other one says, I said it, and I'm showing you evidence beyond my words. And so the one asserts and provides additional evidence. One simply asserts. So one has a dead faith and one has a living faith. And, you know, if you go into a court and you say your peace, and you expect to be acquitted simply because you said you didn't do it, how's that going to work out? 
Or it could be the other way around. But the mere testimony of that one person is not going to be sufficient to settle the case. The mere testimony of one person is not going to be sufficient to settle the case unless the one person is God himself. See, in the law, especially when they were talking about the penalty being the death penalty, they didn't allow it to be carried out on one witness. There had to be additional evidence, more than one witness. Why? Because that witness wasn't God. If God said it, that really does settle it. But if one of us said it, we shouldn't take that as having settled it. We might take it good, as good evidence because of credibility issues, and the person is very credible, and you give a lot of weight to that. But you don't say that's all that we need to be concerned about because there might be other facts that we need to know before we know that the matter is settled. And so faith, James says, don't be satisfied with a dead faith. Don't be satisfied to have a faith like the demons. Have a genuine faith, and then God will work in and through us. And there will be works. We're going to pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving to us a privilege to look into the word. Help us to continue and not forget and do according to your word. We ask in the name of Christ, the Savior, thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.